Let's go. You're listening to KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Yay area on 90.1 and across the world at KZSU.org. Welcome to Brands, Beats, and Bites, hosted by Daryl D.C. Cobbin and Larry Taman. Brands, Beats, and Bites stands at the intersection of brand tech and culture. We bring you interesting people and insightful points of view on what's popping and not popping in marketing, tech, culture, and beyond. DC and Larry are fascinated with the stories and people behind some of the best marketing in the business. No matter how dope your product, if your marketing sucks, your company may suck too. They both serve as managing partners at marketing consultancy brand positioning doctors where they help companies large and small tech and non-tech build better marketers so they can build great brands. We got a good one today, peoples. We got a good one today. We got <laughs> we a do. special guest. That He's our boy, actually. We got to acknowledge yeah, it. This, straight this, up. This is one of our boys. We talk about our show standing at the intersection of brand, tech, and culture. You're going to get the brand and the tech today, but today you're also going to get the culture. You're going to get the culture. Larry, can you tell us more about our guest today? Yes, for sure, DC. I I can't tell you how much I've been waiting to do this show. Me too. Me too. All right. So, uh, folks, we have our very special guest this week is none other than Michael Moore. Bold aware. Yes, sir. In the relatively short history of Brands, Beats, and Bites, though, this is now our second guest who shares the same name of another person who, to use our marketing parlance, has a higher Q score. Mm, okay. Mm. <laughs> so, no, that is not that Michael Moore. Not that Michael Moore. No. This is Michael Bulware Moore, who is slimmer, darker, and more handsome <laughs> than the other guy. Okay? Yeah, easy, easy. All right. We'll have to s- All right. slather some, something <laughs> on, on the side of his ears to get him up out of the studio. So, please. <laughs> so, I know wow. when you hand your credit card to some folks, Mike, they're a bit surprised to see you. Is that correct? Well, it seems like almost every day somebody has some snide remark about uh, Michael Moore. The interesting thing, when I lived in Seattle, mm-hmm. I got one kind of a reception about Michael Moore. Ooh. I moved back to Georgia. Ooh, you got a different, got a different, <laughs> you got a different reaction. So, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to continue, though. All right. So, anyway, I just want to give the audience more of an intro to your great background. Mike grew up outside of Boston, went to school at Syracuse University, where he played varsity lacrosse. And that's sort of like playing college basketball at the University of North Carolina. You notice the school I used right there? He then went on to work in banking before going back to that school in Durham, Duke University, to earn his MBA. (laughs) That's right, Fuqua School. After graduating from Duke, Michael joined the Coca-Cola company, working in brand management, where he worked in the Mellow Yellow brand and then worked in the Coca-Cola Classic brand. And trust us, folks, to get that assignment, you have to be really, really good. So obviously, this is rooted in the brand part of the tree. He was then recruited to join a high-flying company named No Fear. And with Michael's help, they were a juggernaut who at the time really embedded themselves in the culture with apparel that truly spoke to the No Fear name with catchy phrases such as, face your fears, live your dreams, no fear. 
soon after his focus went to technology, right? There's a tech part here. After he was recruited to be president and CMO of Infopop, he mentioned Seattle. That was based in Seattle. Infopop was one of the early tech pioneers in online social media tools, and Mike helped advance them to be a very valuable B2B brand in that space. After Infopop, Mike went to the Peer Forum, where he chaired a group of CMOs, you hear that, folks, where they would share best practices and where they could help each other solve problems that only really other CMOs could relate to and really understand and help one another. So in his next big stop, he became the CEO of Glory Foods, a purveyor of Southern-style canned and fresh foods, where he grew the business for it to be sold. And then in 2016, he was recruited to be the CEO of the International African-American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, which he accepted and is currently in that position today. So, D., Really cool how now all of the brand, tech, and culture prowess that Mike has developed through his career are now being channeled into an everlasting living and breathing monument for good, right? Yes. Uh, The IAAM, for short, is a museum that will be built at the scene of much suffering where more than 80% of African Americans have an enslaved ancestor who came through Gadsden Wharf in Charleston. As it says on the website, the IAAM will present the largest Undertold experiences and contributions of Americans of African descent. Thrilled to have you here in person on the farm, Mike, at Stanford. Welcome to Brands, Beats, and Bites, Michael Moore. Welcome, Michael. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. It's always wonderful to see you, gentlemen. Unfortunately, I don't see you all enough. And uh, it's wonderful to participate in this. I really enjoyed the work that you've done to date, and I'm honored to be in this chair. Thank My you. Man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Michael. I was going to get into something uh, a little more serious, but I'm going to make a quick left turn here. So Larry <laughs> mentioned... Not, not shocked by this. This is by a DC way. left turn. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are you, what you saying? What you saying? So as Larry I'm mentioned... Myself. <laughs> Larry mentioned Michael played lacrosse in undergrad, and Michael is an incredible athlete. He's got a couple of sons who are also athletic. I mean, Michael. Four of them, by the way. Yeah, four, yeah, yeah, yeah actually yeah, four of them. Yeah. Yep, my bad, my bad. Yeah. Four of them. Okay, so Michael can ball. So Michael and I played on the same intramural basketball team. We're going to go there? We're going to go there. Way back in the day. <laughs> now, in the league. Hang on, folks. Okay, okay. So in the league. Okay, easy, easy. In this league, if you rank the players, let's say that we had like like maybe 50 or 60 players in the league or so, Michael was probably like one or two most talented. Okay. Me, I was 59, 60. Okay. Most talented. Okay. So I'm the point guard and Michael's the forward. And so Michael and I would have issues on the court because Michael (laughs) liked to get the rock in a certain place and in a certain volume. Okay. Now there's a problem with that. Okay. Michael wasn't the point guard. I was the point guard. Okay. Which means I had the ball and I decided who got the ball, where they got the ball and the volume in which they received the ball. All right. So Michael and I would literally be on the same team, 
like taking an out of bounds thing, walking up the court, barking at one another. Okay, I'm dribbling the ball up. He'd be saying, "Yo, D, you need to. You see me over here?" I'm like, Michael, if you keep talking, you will not get another ball today. Okay, <laughs> keep it up. Okay? Can we say eight personalities? Oh, Can we man. say that? Oh my oh, goodness, man. man! It was so funny, and you know, people are looking at us like, "Yo, dudes, y'all on the same team." <laughs> and by the way, we were winning. We were winning. Now. That's true, Michael. We were winning. I was trying to, He's, he's competitive, too. He's a competitive, too. All right. I just had to say that, Michael. Well, what I, do you have to say I, for yourself, well, I, okay? I, I, I don't have anything to say for what you said, but <laughs> what I will say is that I had a lot of fun. That was a long time ago. That was, what, probably 25 years? You're 20 plus, man. Yeah, 20 yeah, years 20 ago. plus. Yeah, that, those were good, good times. Oh, weren't they good times, good man? Good times. I had a really good time. All right. Okay, so now we're going to get on to more serious matters. So, Larry went through your introduction, which is fabulous, by the way. The fact that you have not kind of a little bit on the culture end, but you're actually really taking the experience that you've had throughout your career and you are applying that in the area of culture, like culture, like for real, for real. Like, tell us where you are with IAAM. Well, thank you for the question. And let me back up. Because, you know, I've always, you know, growing up and, and sort of getting into my career, I always had this firewall, this, this really mm. distinct firewall between two aspects of who I am. Mm. On the one side, I really appreciated and was fascinated by brands, by marketing, by consumer behavior, trying to figure out how people think mm-hmm. and how they make decisions. My mom, her PhD is in uh, psychology. My dad's PhD was in philosophy. So mm. we have all these sort oh, of yeah. conversations. Imagine deep dinner table. Robin too, yeah, right? Yeah, dinner yeah. table conversations, right? So branding was an extension of those kinds of think that kind of thinking and mm-hmm. I really, really loved it. But on the other side, you know, I was descended from people who made a name for themselves in history and mm-hmm. who really devoted their lives to public service and to social activism. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to sort of express that aspect of me. Yeah. But I obviously I I couldn't when I was young. I mean, you know, growing up, I was, you know, president of the student body and president of the African-American student organization. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did those things where I could. But yep, once yep. you jump into the business world, it mm-hmm. is difficult to do that. So now I am, you know, that firewall has dissolved mm-hmm. and I am leveraging great, great all this this business acumen, this sort of general management, even startup sort of mm-hmm. experience, but leveraging that in the service of this other side of me, this yeah. side toward history. And, you know, we have this really unique opportunity in that we are, you know, creating an African-American history museum mm-hmm. on the site largely where that history began. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just, it's very powerful. I was, uh, there was a architecture critic from the New York Times came down about mm-hmm. a year and a half or, or so ago and he was telling about how he had been all around the world and seen all these kinds of things and we were talking about the impact of what we were doing on the site and the power of the, the spot and I had told him about the fact that I had been to the Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. not too long ago and he traces his roots to Jewish ancestry 
And he was saying that what we're doing is would be like taking the Holocaust Museum in D.C., picking it up and putting it down smack dab in the middle of Auschwitz or. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yes. Like yep. It's exactly and right. So, and just how much more powerful that that experience would be. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're right. we're leveraging the platform, the space in a way to tell the stories that deserve to be told, that have been undertold, that have been muted for so long. I love that undertold stories. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's uh it's great. We are we're working hard. We're continuing to raise money to be able to break ground. Later this summer is the plan. We'll have a we're actually taking this to city council. We're we're connected to the city of Charleston. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to take this for approval to city council in July. Hopefully that will allow us to do some preliminary site work through the summer and have a big groundbreaking event in October. Mm-hmm. And then it'll be about a two-year construction cycle where we look to open in spring of 2021. So it's so it's, exciting. It's gonna be, yeah, it's gonna, but, you, but you've raised all the money. All the money's right, right? All the money's right? No, no, you're still, no, no, no. We, okay, okay. okay, I well, shouldn't. Uh, okay. Let me, let me be honest about it. So <laughs> Please we, do. We actually had a big event in August. We thought we were done. Right. We'd raised, it's a $100 million project. Mm-hmm. $25 million was the land that the city bought to for the project, mm-hmm. 25 million we got in local money mm-hmm. from the city and the county, 25 we got from the state and 25 we raised from private philanthropy. Okay. Once we did that, we were then able to go out and hire a construction manager to start pricing everything. Okay. Let's we got, just we say- bu- We got a budget it, problem? We got a budget problem. <laughs> yeah. Inflation and yeah, yeah. all sorts of other kinds of things sort of yeah. reared their ugly heads. Yeah. So we we had some more money to raise. So we're, we're concluding that. We've raised another- you know, 12, 13 million on top wow. of that and, oh, you know, have good. a few more to go. And uh, we, we've got great momentum. So we're, we're very excited. So D, I'm going to say this. I know he is, Mike and his team have done an incredible job of oh, raising yeah. the money. I mean, literally from scratch, right, yeah. Mike? And, and so it's been an incredible undertaking that's been painful at times, but then incredibly rewarding at the end. And we're not at the end here. Like mm-hmm. you said, you have more to go, but it's been incredible work and, mm-hmm. and for something that's truly uh, life-changing, I think, for you and for everybody that's going to be involved in it. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we have an amazing team. We're, the idea for this museum came from former Charleston Mayor Joe Riley. He had been mayor. He's, he retired a couple of years ago, but had mm-hmm. been mayor for 40 years. 4-0. Uh, 40 years. One of the longest serving mayors in uh, sort of contemporary history. And um, read not, a, not much in the term limits. I see. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the man. I mean, he was right. delivering. He's the dude. He did, did a good job. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And read a book called Slaves in the Family by a guy named Edward Ball, who mm-hmm. uh, was from a slave holding family. Mm-hmm. And he was coming to terms with his family's history. Wow. And mm. also connecting with some of the enslaved people who had been on his plantation. So to make a long story short, you know, Mayor Riley really came to grips and became aware of a whole aspect of Charleston history that he just had not been taught. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of this history, Charleston is a city that's built on tourism and built on history. Yes. But it's... But not all history. Not all of this. Not all white history. history. I'm going to say that. So so we're, we're, you know, looking forward to adding to the narrative, to filling that out. And, and, you know, I think it's going to be really powerful. Oh, wow. So two takeaways, Michael, from that. Uh, for those of you listening, and you'll hear more about it, and we encourage you to go check out the website to learn more. If you want to contribute to something that is meaningful, to have a story that is undertold, actually be told at the level it should be told, then feel free to contribute. 
What's yeah. the website again, Mike? Can you give it? Yeah, it's iaamuseum.org. iaamuseum.org. And uh, thank you for, for oh. asking. Yeah, he didn't know we were going to do that. The second takeaway is uh, Michael was just gesturing and he held up a note here in the studio that said that he is going to be working pro bono for the next uh, however many years. <laughs> That's going to be his contribution. So, Michael, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Now he's putting the cut sign. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, 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 I'm making that up, people. I'm, 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 I'm making that up. But seriously, though, Michael, you talked about your parents and the PhD and the psychology and conversations that you had at the at your dinner tables, mm-hmm. and you alluded to your family beyond that. Mm-hmm. All right. And so we'd like you to share a little bit more about the legacy mm-hmm. from whence. You've come. So can you talk to us a bit about a gentleman named Robert Smalls? Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to. So Robert Smalls was born enslaved in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina, right on the sort of in the low country there and ended up as a 12 year old on his own in Charleston, which is about an hour and a half by car north. It was the big city back then and still is to some degree working on the docks, was married. As the Civil War broke out, he had been a pilot on a Confederate ship called the Planter. And, you know, he, like I said, he was married. He had two very, very young children. And like any father, like any husband, he loved his family. Mm -hmm. And he, as an enslaved person, knew that his family could be sold away from him in an instant. Mm-hmm. And that bothered him. And so, to say the least, right? No, I was going to so, say, yeah. you, you think? Yeah. yeah. So, a couple things. One, he had negotiated with the master of his wife to buy the freedom of his wife and his children. He put down, he got, while he was in Charleston, he got a salary and he was allowed, and he obviously had to send that salary back to his master, but he was allowed to save a dollar a month or so of that salary. And with that, he went out and he bought various sundries, tobacco, candy, Mm -hmm. fruit that he sold on the docks to make even more money. (laughs) And so he saved every penny of that. And (laughs) he put a hundred dollar down payment on the life and freedom of his children. But that wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. He knew that the Confederate crew on this ship, the planter, that there were times that they left for the evening not to come back until the next day. Mm -hmm. And he also knew that just outside the mouth of the harbor, Charleston Harbor, was a federal blockade. Mm -hmm. And that if he could get there, that he would be free. Mm-hmm. And so again, fast forwarding to make a long story short, on the morning of May 13th, 1862, he saw an opportunity. The Confederate crew left. He gathered his family, the other enslaved crew and their families, and he donned the long overcoat of the Confederate captain Mm -hmm. and his long big top hat Mm -hmm. because he was the pilot of the boat he knew all of the passcodes that he would need to sort of execute to get past the four or five forts in the harbor incredible it's unbelievable marched his way you know sailed his way to freedom essentially and then to make a long story short he came back and fought in the Union Army, became the first African-American to command a United States naval vessel. He was the most senior African-American in wow. the, the Union. He convinced President Lincoln to allow in, formerly enslaved men into the 
union to serve, about 180,000 men did so. And some historians suggest that that really helped the union to, to win the war. And then after the war, he went back to his hometown of Beaufort, got involved in politics, was elected to the South Carolina House and then to the Senate. That wasn't enough just to do what he did yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And when he, was, uh, when he was in the legislature there, he wrote the legislation to create the first free compulsory statewide public school system there in South Carolina, but it was the first in the nation. There the were nation. public schools all around, but there was never a compulsory school system for all races, all classes and the like. Oh so he did goodness. that. And then after a while, he went to Congress, became one of the first African-Americans to serve in Congress and served five terms there before Reconstruction dissolved and sort of the, the rug was pulled from underneath uh, African-Americans at that time. So <laughs> how about that for a life? And Mike, you and I have talked about this a lot. So that May 12th, right? The night of May 12th, and then going into May 13th, Robert Smalls knew that at the end of that day, he was going to be free or dead. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was was definitely a life or death proposition. They lined the bottom of the boat with dynamite. They knew that if they got caught, that not only would they be killed, but they'd be executed in a particularly violent and public way as an example for other people. So they basically, uh, it was a do or die proposition. And I often say, you know, it's one thing to know how to sail a boat in the middle of the night through the the harbor to do so at the imminent threat of death. You know, that's, that's another thing. And if he had flubbed up here or there oh. if he had you know i i wouldn't be here so i have my very life to literally think. yes yeah literally yeah yes so that's the stock you come from mm. and and so now fast forward to what you're doing now to take your incredible business background and this is this is the wonderful thing that we talk about just in this humble podcast brands beats and bites the intersection of brand tech and culture to bring all that together for good yeah. as as your friend we can't be more happy for what you're doing and and where you're supposed to be thank you no it's definitely you know i've had a lot of really great jobs. This mm-hmm. is kind of a calling. It, yes, it, it is. is yeah. Well said. Yes. Beyond, um, yeah. you know, working at Coke on the, the Coke brand was an amazing job. I yes. Mean, I was, uh, you know, president of a company that was, you know, really a, one of the pioneers of what we all now know as social media. Mm-hmm. That was a great job. Yeah. You know, I've, yeah. I've done, you know, some really fun things, but, um, you know, I think I have an opportunity now to do something that will create you know, some real lasting legacy that my children, my grandchildren, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. my great grandchildren will get have a chance to come and see and mm-hmm. that will, you know, positively impact the world we live in. So I feel blessed. You know what I'm thinking, Michael? What a story. While not with the same degree of uh, downside and risk, this IAAM experience that you're now having, this is your planter. Ah, well said, D. And you've got to navigate yeah. this thing. Yeah. And not all of the waters are friendly. No, they're not. You're absolutely yeah. right. And Trust you've me. got some codes. <laughs> yeah. And you need to use those codes. And if you don't succeed in doing this, then a hundred years from now, the story of what is going to be told through IAAM isn't going to be told. That's why you're in this seat. So true, D. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it, it is uh it is interesting. It it is not uh without complexities around politics and mm-hmm. and the like but uh 
you know, we, we've got a wonderful, wonderful team of folks who are the best at what they do in the country. And, uh, you know, we're working hard. Great. Thank you. So now we got to, we're going to go back to the little bit of marketing here. Love it. Okay. Love it. So, which, which is, uh, again, we, I know you enjoy that aspect of you, but, but that was such great conversation about, about IAM really and, the, and the background Thank you, to your Thank family. You. And I'm so glad we got that story out. Really terrific. So, okay. So now, Mike, we have a next segment. It's called On the Clock mm. is what we call this. So, you know, on our show, we we have a lot of CMOs on, folks like yourself. And we've read all kinds of reports and news out there that the tenure for CMOs is pretty damn short, right? And we, we use the stat that we've read for high growth companies that the average tenure is 18 months. So what are you going to do in 18 months? And dropping. Yeah, and dropping, right? So- so with your great, unique perspective on this, been a CMO at a, at a high-growth tech company, having chaired a group of CMOs, and you did that for a while, right? And then as a CEO, you've had marketing underneath you in terms of uh, folks in the marketing chairs and, and marketing leadership report to you. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think marketing for, and I have a couple of hypotheses about this, but marketing is like, for many general managers is like a black box. <laughs> yeah. Well said. They, they yeah. know that it's powerful, that it works, that they need it, that they need to invest in it, but they don't have a clue about how it works, about mm-hmm. what's going on in that, mm-hmm. that box. They don't it's an really, amorphous black box, box uh, meaning they don't know what's going on in the black uh, box, uh, Absolutely. Right? Right. And so um, oftentimes they're not able to provide the support for marketing and branding mm-hmm. that is required, but yet Obviously, a CMO is held responsible for performance and, you know, in the same way that you see in a variety of different contexts, you know, you see, you know, in sports, you'll see a coach get fired. Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the coach's fault. Maybe it's the general manager's fault. Right. Yes. Um, and there's a difference. So I, I think, you know, the CEOs have to be are held accountable for the performance of their organizations. Mm-hmm. And particularly if it's a consumer company, then the CMO has really considerable weight in all of that. And, you know, if, if things aren't moving, the CEO is starting to feel the heat, then it's politically, you know, something's got to give. And, and oftentimes, too often, it's the CMO. Far too often, it's the uh, CMO. I've got an analog to that sharing that you just made there, Michael and uh, and Larry. It's this. This thing is complicated by the following. I'm a consumer of air travel. A big, all, a big consumer. Traveled all over the world. Mm. I love to travel. I'm okay being on a plane. I'm not bothered by being on a plane. But because I'm a consumer of air travel does not mean that I rise from my seat Go knock on the cockpit door and say, hey, (laughs) I got some thoughts about how this plane ought to be flown here. In fact, excuse me, uh, pilot, can you get up? You go sit in my seat and I'll get us into Gatwick. All right. I'm good with that. This is what happens with with marketing, with C-suite executives and others. Too often. Because they're consumers of marketing and consumers, they think they can fly the marketing plane. So it's a black box, but oddly, Michael and Larry, some people think they got it figured out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they don't. And they don't. Yeah, and most don't. Yes. That's well the, said. the vast majority don't. Correct. Which is why 
you know, you all are in the right spot. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Doing thank the you. right things. Yeah, yeah. So, Charlotte, can you take us to our first read, please? The Music Maker Relief Foundation works to preserve the revered musical traditions of the American South, ensuring that musicians' voices will not be silenced by poverty or time. Music Maker brings life performances to underserved populations, guides artists in professional development, and assists with booking and tour management, and provides monthly stipends for food, shelter, and medical care when needed. You can help by volunteering your time or donating. For more info, visit musicmaker.org. Thank you, Charlotte. Check out musicmaker.org. All right, Michael, we are now into our next segment. We call it Five Questions. Mm. I hit you with a question. LT hits you with a question until we get to five. The first one is this. What was the first branding experience that you had that really like lit your fire where you were like, like what, what just happened here? Like, like a first love for you. I mean, it had to be when I first got to Coke, I had a previous brand experience at, at what was then called General Foods, actually working on uh, sugar-free Jello gelatin, uh, which was a blast. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got to Coke, there's a different kind of marketing, much more consumer focused. Mm-hmm. We were allowed because of the bottling network, and I'm uh, I'm you know obviously speaking to the choir here. Mm-hmm. You guys yep, know this indeed. better than I. But that allowed brand managers to be much more consumer centric and focused and, 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 um, and so as mentioned earlier, my first brand, um, I actually worked on two right out of the gate. It was Mellow Yellow and Mr. Pibb. Two, oh, yes. Oh, we forgot about two, the shout out to yeah, Mr. Pibb. Right. Mr. Pibb. That's right. <laughs> and remember your Kyle Petty Mellow Yellow yeah, days, that's right? right? That's right. <laughs> so for me, it was great though, because here, here I am at this enormous company with, you know, just at the time, seemingly unlimited resources for marketing and branding, but I had an opportunity to cut my teeth on these somewhat smaller tactical brands. And so folks didn't get in, in our business so mm-hmm. much, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're working on Sprite, you're working yeah. on Powerade, yeah. you know, folks looking over your shoulders in a pretty significant way. Yeah. You know, we, we were kind of left alone and we mm-hmm. actually did a complete new uh, sort of brand identity on, remember. on the businesses mm-hmm. and, you know, did some fun advertising. You know, as Larry mentioned, we Mellow Yellow was involved at the time in NASCAR racing. And so that was fun getting to learn that property and how to use something like that to help build awareness and build a brand. So that was a lot of fun. Mr. Pib. Mr. <laughs> Pib and Mellow Yellow. That's, that's really cool. And so that really helped you then get into classic where now it was completely the opposite where oh, at the yeah. time Roberto Goizueta was the CEO. He was the brand manager. He was the brand manager of Coke. Absolutely. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> knew it. No right? As, as he should have been. Right, yes, right, that's right, right. As he should have Names right. on the building. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But no, it was great. I mean, working broadly, you know, working at Coke was for me just a really transformational experience. You know, I before I went to Coke after business school, but before business school, I was in the banking side. I was a mm-hmm. commercial lender for five or six years. I knew I wanted to get into marketing, but, you know, obviously as a, as a banker, you can't knock on Coke's door and say, Hey, you know, put yeah. me down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, got the MBA, which was great. And just really loved, again, trying to get inside consumers' heads, trying to figure out, you know, what makes them tick? How, mm-hmm. how do you, 
mm-hmm. um, talk to them in a way that will resonate and urge them to do something, to buy your product, to like your product. So it, it was it was a lot of fun. Where do you think you did that best? You're talking about getting it to consumer's head. Where do you think that if you can think of something off the top of your head where you go, wow, we really, we really got into their head and, and really came out with something that was special? You know, I think I'm probably still working on that. Ah, okay. It's it's a work in process. I mean, I think think clearly at Coke, you know, before going into sort of smaller, more entrepreneurial environments, I mean, we had an amazing sort of inventory of resources to apply to in terms of research, in terms of... You know, agencies. We had the, the best life. of the best so, to yeah, tap into. Yeah. 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 So, so I think that that was where I really I learned certainly the most. I was on the steepest part of the learning curve in terms of my brand thinking, and then you know from there. The, but then used that in other kinds of environments when we were at right. No Fear. You know, again, a brand that is pretty much lost to obscurity at this point. But at the time, it, it was, was huge. It was the Can't, fastest growing, right. you know, sort of a brand, sports brand mm-hmm. in the world. We sold a more. Pioneer. We yeah. sold more branded T-shirts, for example, than any other brand in the country in the world at that time. So mm-hmm. more than Nike, more than more Adidas, anybody. And we were adding sort of edge and right. attitude. Right. And Nike came from that. Mm-hmm. You know, right. with 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 Steve you know, Prefontaine and, and, and way back, that, yeah, 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 yeah. But they, yeah. they had kind of, you know, smoothed out a little right. bit. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, really yeah. sort of coming at it from a much more aggressive standpoint. You know, I'll talk about this in one of the what I'm imagining one of the future questions will be. But, ah. uh, okay, we love we'll, it. We'll see. Yeah. We'll love it. Okay, so okay, I'm going to go to question two. So, Mike, who has had or is having the most influence on your career? Well, you know, for this one, this is going to sound kind of sappy, perhaps, but it'll it'll be true. You know, I have I have always been one who has, for some crazy reason, has shied away from or who has underperformed looking for mentors, going out mm. and sort of securing mentors. And I don't know quite why. Maybe there's some, you know, a little bit of an introvert. I, I'm not exactly sure, but there's no question that the person who has had the most influence on me as a human being was my mother. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she she told me Still, over, to this day. And over and over again that I can do anything I want to do. I was just foolish enough to <laughs> believe her. You know, you just sort of got ingrained in my my thinking. And so there were plenty of instances where I'd walk into a situation and I'd have I'd have no reasonable expectation to be able to do something or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm at least having a credible conversation, you know, back in the mid nineties, you know, Larry, you may recall had a crazy idea. You know what, you know, you, you had Jeff in earlier, you know what, we, we should go try to see what we can do. Let's go buy Converse. That's right. I remember this. Yep. And, yes. uh, you know, we almost we did. Were, we were young and didn't, you know, weren't general managers in the right. true sense of the word, but we knew brands. Right. And we developed a hypothesis about how to, you know, really build that brand and create real economic opportunity from it. And uh, mm-hmm. and we got close. We did. 
Almost did. No, that's that's cool. And I have to say a shout to your mom, who is still to this day, right. right, has such right. a great influence on you and a pioneer that she's been. Think of in her generation, right, being a PhD and all the great things that your mom and dad did vis-a-vis business and African-Americans, I think, yeah. should be stated as well, Thank right? You. So that's something, too. So, D, you want to go to the next one? I do. I do. Michael, you've been a... CMO, you've been a president, you've been a CEO, you've been like the lead dude in many different uh, areas of your career. And our guests are no doubt listening and going, ooh, this is a deep brother right here. And you are when you're not barking at me walking down the court. (laughs) You're a deep guy. You knew he was going to do this, right? (laughs) You knew he was going to bring this up. I was going to write it into the contract, no basketball. No, this is We're throwing that out. We're throwing that contract out. Rip it up. (laughs) What we'd like you to share is uh, your biggest F up and what you learned from it, Michael. So I'm not sure I'm going to get at this in the way that you are expecting. I mean, I, I F up all the time. Okay. And so, you know, I'm a human being. I make, I make a lot of mistakes, Mm -hmm. but I have built my brain in a way that I don't think about mistakes. There've been plenty of things that I've Mm -hmm. done that haven't worked out the way that I had planned or the way that I had hoped, Mm -hmm. but I've always been a very introspective person, very sort of self analytical. And I, I think a lot about what happened. I really, you know, sort of go through it and I try to learn from it. And so if something happens and uh, if I make a decision and something happens a little bit differently, mm-hmm. if I can extract the learning, the key sort mm-hmm. of learnings from that, then I feel like I'm ahead. I've, I've got yeah. insight that I might not otherwise have had. Now, plenty of things. I mean, I, I was mentioning this about No Fear before, you know, when we were at No Fear, Nike came calling twice that I know of Mm -hmm. wanted to buy us. And we said, no, you know, we had some hubris. We were, you know, growing at a ridiculously aggressive pace. And Mm -hmm. Nike wasn't buying brands at that time. They weren't. Right. I mean, think about it. There was no, that was really, this was pre Oakley even. Wow. Okay. So yeah, Yeah, they they were scarred. (laughs) Exactly right. And we made the decision that no, that, that was not, we weren't going to do that. We were going to go it on our own. Mm -hmm. I think that was a mistake. Why? Because I think, well, or we would either have to do that or we would have had to go public to Mm -hmm. be able to capitalize growth in a way that would allow us to continue to compete Mm -hmm. and to market ourselves globally. Mm -hmm. And without that capital, you know, there are ebbs and flows in any business and we just kind of ran into a brick wall mm-hmm. of sort of capitalization. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was that was a mistake that we made. I think, you know, some people have looked back. I remember as I was leaving Coke, people told me I was crazy. They told you in nuts. Yeah, I did. remember that. I yeah. do too. Yeah. And, I remember that. You know, for me I I had already worked about six years before going to business school, I felt like I needed to continue to stay on that steep part of the learning curve. Mm-hmm. You know, I had been, you know, managing the the Coke brand, the Coke classic brand for a number of years. And I was about to, you know, perhaps get moved off of that. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, I just took a leap 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it, it was interesting. It was, I, I grew in immensely. I tripled my salary. I, you know, I earned some real stock that, that mm-hmm. was, you know, was great for me at the time. I had leadership of, you know, sort of a marketing organization that was new and different. Mm-hmm. I was in a fast growth. I, I was out of my comfort zone in a way that, um, was really, was good for me. And so, you know, but again, in San Diego, that didn't yeah, suck either. Oh, man. oh no, that you didn't know, that, suck at all. Yeah, that was great. So, you know, there were, there were a lot of things, you know, that I've done. You know, I had an opportunity to work with Mike Milken in Knowledge Universe mm-hmm. when he was sort of had amassed Junk fortunes. Bombs. Yeah, he, he had, you know, was in that business and got out of jail, frankly, and mm-hmm. was trying to, you know, do some other things and had an opportunity to work there. That was a flyer. That was a leap. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I've I've taken chances, but yeah. I've always tried to, and and not all of them have worked out as I expected. They never but do. I've learned, I've grown, and I was able to leverage those learnings in future kinds of endeavors mm-hmm. that have put me ahead. So let's go back to no fear. Yes. So Nike comes calling. You say no once, and then you say no twice, and then you talked about this lack of capital wall that you hit. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that? Great question. And how has that impacted future decisions? Yeah, that, that is a great question. The Thank power you. of ego. Mm. You know, yeah. that, that, that sometimes, you know, we always talk about business as being this sort of dispassionate exercise, you know, making these decisions mm-hmm. based on formulas and, mm-hmm. and the like. Mm-hmm. Maybe that happens sometimes, but <laughs> just as often, you know, I've seen, you know, personal egos being involved where, you know, and so, you know, I, I think that's the case that even, you know, a company is just the collection of human beings who come mm-hmm. together for theoretically for, you know, a common purpose, but you, you can never forget that it's just people, it's human beings, mm-hmm. and even the CEO of, you know, whatever the big company or whatever, he's a human being who has thoughts, he has feelings. Yeah. And so yeah. That, I think that that was one of the things. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. No, that's great. Okay. So we're going to question four here. So uh, Mike, thinking back to your Infopop days, and I remember talking to you then like this social media is coming and then we've got What's these that? really cool tools, right? And so, you know, you were involved at the forefront of that. And then obviously marketing has been either front and center or pretty close to front and center for your entire career post-grad school. So with that, what's your thoughts about the largest impact technology will have on the future of marketing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be incredible. And, and I, I don't think we can fully imagine mm-hmm. the impact that technology would have. But let me let me take a quick step back. You know, I'm, I, you all are, are very well preserved. Um, I'm old enough to have been around at the Coca-Cola company, for example, when I was sitting at the table and someone said, website? Like, what, what's a website? Like, what, what do we need a website? What are we going to do with it? What are we going to put on it? Yeah. What, do we yeah. need one of those? Yeah. And then, you know, about a decade later, I was at the table with lots of companies. We were selling social media online communities to media companies like Sony and the New York Times and Discovery Channel who wanted to figure out how to leverage, repurpose some of the content that they developed. Mm -hmm. But I was at these tables where people would say, you know, social media, like, is that even a thing? Like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. is it, is it Mm -hmm. real? Like, what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. 
And so I think there's going to be something else right. in our lifetime that's right. going to be big and powerful. Right. Yeah. Like that we can't imagine right now. I look at the way, you know, I've got youngsters. My youngest is 12. I have a niece who is six. And I see the way they engage with technology. And, you know, I, I like to pride myself as being pretty adept at dealing with technology. Yeah. I really enjoy it as a consumer. Yeah. But they, they just engage. Yeah. It's imprinted. The totally. experience of engaging with technology is imprinted on them in just a very different way. Right, it is. You know, yeah. she's six years old and she's, you know, flipping around and doing all kind of stuff with her phone, with a right. laptop. And so I can only imagine what that early experience, yeah. you know, when... In particular, you know, when her brain, when young people's brains are developing and right, how yeah. technologies and games, that, that's going to allow them to envision all kinds of things that at least I can't envision now. So, so could you think how it might impact marketing, though? Again, thinking yeah. of marketing well, specifically, like even I, like what a, what's going on with AI and everything. I appreciate you it. Know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, it, it will impact everything. It will continue to impact data. Right. And the way that we understand how marketing and particularly advertising work, I think that's critical. I hope that it allows us to gain, glean greater insights into consumer behavior mm -hmm. in more powerful ways. I think some of this data stuff has become a crutch mm. that people just look to numbers and, you know, make sort of decisions on right. that. I, I, I'm with that. I don't want to mischaracterize my, right. my view on data. But I, you know, I, I think you've got to have a broad sort of holistic view about these things. Mm -hmm. And I just can only imagine that technology will, will help all of those. Right. Right. All right, Michael, final question of the five seen a lot, done a lot, interacted with a lot of different people of everything that you've done whether it be in work life or personal, what are you most proud of? Okay, well, that's easy. Since you, you put the personal piece on yes, it, then that, that's it easy. I, I was put on this planet to be the father to my four children. Mm. And, you know, that can we may, give a shout out? Well, that may sound, you know, no, come, let's give a shout out to all four, please. Yeah, yeah. So my, my oldest is David. He's at Central Michigan University mm -hmm. now. Um, is that Chippewa? He is. He's right. Chippewa. Look for him on the football field. Plays quarterback there. My um, next oldest is Lucas, who is just finishing up his freshman year at Georgia Southern University. He's a defensive back. Plays there. My next is a junior in high school at Wando High School. Plays lacrosse. Chip off the old block. Israel. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then my youngest is Robert, who... Uh, uh, Daryl, you'll be proud to know he's a basketball player. Is he really? He's nice. And a darn good one. <laughs> he's nice. Yeah. He's, okay. He's, and and really good kids and everything. But on the professional front, if I can offer Please. a, a you may. dimension you may. to this. So everything in life, one way or the other, is additive. Particularly if you are introspective and you're thinking and you, you are in a mode of learning a lot. You know, you, you are smarter tomorrow than you are today. And so in that way... I think what I'm doing now with this museum and creating something that will have a potentially a lasting impact on this nation, I think that's really important. But but even with that, I, I think my best days are ahead of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just feel really optimistic about the impact that I'm able to have now. And I don't think I'm through. So not even close. You're not. You're not even close. That's because you're not, Michael. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not wow. even close. Charlotte, 
Would you please give us another read? Yes, we're going to give you an improv read more about the museum. And so I am aims to recenter South Carolina's place in global history, illuminating its pivotal role in the development of the international slave trade and the Civil War. The museum will connect visitors to their ancestors, demonstrating how enslaved Africans and free blacks shaped economic, political, and cultural development in the nation and beyond. Film documents and digital archives further aid visitors in placing the story of African arrival in historical context. So we want to continue to encourage you all that there are many ways to support the IAAM. You can help pass information along. You can volunteer. Just contact us, like go to their website. It's very, very easy, IAAM. And you can become a member. We can all do that, like today. You can make a donation. Donations of any size are greatly appreciated. So just go to their website, click, make a donation, $10. I know it helps. So uh, thank you so very much for being here with us. And I think it's such a fabulous endeavor. We're going to really track it from, from here and see how it moves forward. Thank you, Michael. IAAMuseum.org. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Yes, we, we can't shout that out enough. Honestly, we appreciate it. Okay, Mike. So this is, uh, we're getting towards the end here. Last big segment we like to call What's Poppin'? What's Poppin'? So what we do in What's Poppin' is that we have, uh, D and I each have a take on something that's current that we're, and or we want to get off our chest, okay? And we give you the opportunity to do, do the same. So you can have your own, you can build on ours, whatever you're comfortable with. So I'm going to start off. All right. So what you got, Larry? Okay. So it's perfect segue. Mike mentioned his four kids. So there's, um, and the NCAA tournament already happened a, a bit ago, but there was an ad during the NCAA tournament from, of all places, Philip 66, Okay, mm-hmm. the the gasoline, and I don't know if you folks have out there, but I'm going to give you a little a little story about it, or tell you a little bit about it. I would encourage you to go YouTube it if you YouTube Philip sixty six and father daughter, and basically it gives the story of a dad helping his daughter play basketball, and then they show them in the car, and they show them in the car at all different of all different flavors of what's going on when you're taking your daughter to whatever athletic endeavor it is. And in this case, it's basketball. So they show states of euphoria. They show states of distraction. They show states of being, both of them being pissed off at each other. They show the girl saying, I don't want to talk about it like that. They just depict the ferrying around that us parents do of children in a way Mm -hmm. that's so cool. It's just it's just incredibly impactful. And they show they also show with friends in the car and not friends in the car. But it's all about them going to and from what seems like her AAU basketball Mm -hmm. tournaments. Right. And so it really speaks to me. Right. And they end it with the tagline live to the full. And they show Mm -hmm. the gas gauge going to the F. And so here's a gasoline. Yes. Doesn't talk about what kind of Tecron they have. No offense yeah, to those yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a gasoline that I got to tell you, to use my Yiddish vernacular, it got me for clumped. It did. It, it, <laughs> it, it, made me, it made me such, it really moved me. And I, we think that the emotion 
of what we try to convey in brand positioning doctors. It's all about the emotional connection that people have. And I think if you're a parent and even if you're taking your kid to violin lessons, you're going to get this. It doesn't have to be basketball and it doesn't have to be that you have a daughter or a mother or father. It was just, it was just brilliant. So, you know, D, you have your three girls. Mike, you've just talked about your four boys and, and ferrying uh, folks. My thought on this commercial is what's Philip 66 going to do next yes. um, from here? Yeah. But I don't know if either of you have seen that ad, but your thoughts. Michael. Yeah, I, I saw it. And I agree with everything you said. Oh, there's a I, conjunction coming. I, I think, I think it was beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. I think it really taps into the father-child dynamic around sports and the like. But with all due respect, <laughs> I love the the E to F. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's I think that's brilliant. But my problem with that ad is, I think for me. I think it's it's a good ad. I think it's a wonderful piece of sort of micro cinema. It's a nice right. story. Right. I'm not sure how effectively the Philip 66 brand yeah, I agree is woven oh, into yeah. the story. Yeah. Philip 66 is like a sort of a product, you know, kind of a yeah, shot. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, they you know, you could I, I remember a wise person once told me LT, <laughs> that if you could pull out one brand I have, we've and just thought, put we've another one in, oh, yes. you know, then, then, and, and that's what I, I I'm just, glad you're challenging I that. just, this, I just, we, wish, this is what we need. No, no, no. I just wish they had, cause I think it's, is brilliant. I think it's very emotional. It taps into some wonderful right. stuff. I just wish they had figured some way to sort of integrate. I agree hundred percent. the essence of so Philip 66 a great point, is just Michael. a little bit more. And that's why I it's wanted to. It's a great point. It's a great point. That's why I want to say I want to see what they do next. Yep. I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I do too. In, in a huge way. Uh, D, what are your thoughts? I have two reactions. The first one is I'm, uh, I'm here in the booth and with me, our executive producers and our audio engineer. So Charlotte's with me back here. Anderson's with me as well as Jeff. And so Michael, you challenging LT, basically destroying his point. No, um, no, no, I, I, I would like to have a new host. host. That's, that's, that's the first thing. Okay, I'm sorry, I, LT. I don't think I don't think Stanford's moving to Charleston. So you know, I want, I want Michael to be the new co-host. No, just kidding. All right. The second thing is that uh, LT, I'm with you. What Petroleum 66 is doing, and we help our clients do this in our uh, in our day-to-day businesses, they are attempting to ladder up. Exactly. Yeah. They're not down at the, we have 93 octane. Right. So they're not at a feature. They're not even at a benefit level. They've no. gone beyond functional benefits, yep. which is what the brand does for you when you engage with it. They're beyond emotional benefits, which is what you want people to feel when they engage with the brand. They're all the way up to dad is a hero mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. Don't you want to be a hero like this? Mm-hmm. Now, I agree they could do a better job of uh, weaving the Philip 66 brand in because we haven't seen their yep. brand architecture. That's right. We haven't seen their position. And let's statement. be clear that we have nothing to do with We Philip do. We have nothing to do They're with They're not them. a client. We, we have none of us have anything yep. to do. That's just a shout out to them. Just shout out to them. But it's the beginning of something. Right. And so that, that I love. Yeah. And I think just where I see the opportunity in, mm-hmm. like you said, LT, in sort of what they do next is, right. is telling the story of how Philip 66 helps That's to right. make that experience. That's right. In a unique 100% way. agree. Right. 
co-host Michael Bowler more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, and that's a great. We've had this conversation. Yeah. That's why Mike. Correct. We have. I know. Yes. You know, we, we've all had this, and that's why it's a great challenge. And and that, just to be clear, to yeah. defend myself, oh, you don't even think <laughs> oh, No, no, no. I'm honest. I, I want to say that's why I want to see what they do next. Yeah. But yes. Mike is a hundred percent right in that you really could put Chevron or you know Shell or anyone in you there could. right now yes. and had their you know gas station in the background you could like do Philip it. Yes. 66 yeah. did. So that's why let's see what they do after yeah. this. Like our show is called Brands, Beats and Bites mm-hmm. and to go to beats like music mm-hmm. and artists can sometimes put out a hit but they can be a one-hit wonder. That's right. You want to know what comes after? That's What's right. your catalog? Yeah. That's right. So they they blazed it, Philip sixty six. With they got a hit. Yeah. What's next? But right. the thing for me is is that unless they just have a ridiculous amount of media to spend behind, which yeah. they don't seem to, yeah. then they're really not getting the biggest bang Agreed. out of the buck because of the way that. Because it's not ownable. But, but I right, yeah. I agree a thousand percent. I think you know part of what frustrates me most about kind of techie kind of advertising yeah. is that there isn't a real acknowledgement appreciation of things beyond features and benefits. Yes. Right. I mean, I look at, at this phone. I mean, I've got a, a Samsung phone and in my view, Samsung is at least as innovative as Apple. Mm-hmm. In terms of features don't, and benefits, don't tell your wife Carla that. Though. Yeah, I know. No. Well, but, but here, here's the thing. You know, they they've That's got good. folding phones now, and they've right. got all this other kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that app, the Apple iPhones brand is just so much more powerful. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. So you know, and and here's the the other interesting thing. I don't remember the guy's name, but there's a Coke guy who's CMO of Samsung now. Oh, interesting. And, oh, yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah. And But they haven't been able to. That's you know, right. That, that's where they need to go is they need to figure out how to tell the stories yes. of how this phone, right. you know, integrates with people's lives. Agree. Right. 100%. All right. I'm going to go to mine now and be in sports category again. Talk about Hulu. So Hulu has a campaign that they've spent a lot of money on. And right, and through the NBA playoffs. Oh, yes. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. Major coin, yeah. cheddar, moolah, skrilla, all of that. They are uh, a they big are, bag. Yeah, 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 all of it. <laughs> they are convincing or wanting people to know that Hulu now has live sports. And on some levels, they might say, well, you guys are talking about it on your show that has to do with branding and marketing. So we've succeeded. Uh, no, you haven't. <laughs> Let me tell you what they're attempting to do. They are attempting to say that there are these influencers who work for all of these different brands and they're shilling these brands, but they're not necessarily being upfront about the fact that they're being paid to do so. So we're going to throw that out and say, listen, people get paid to sell you stuff and we're just going to show you that. So they've got Joel Embiid. They've got uh, Dame Dollar, mm. like Dame Dollar, and then they've got uh, Giannis, so the Greek freak, and each of them has their own spot where they talk about it's all about Hulu has live sports, and they're only doing it for the money, and the spots end with each of them surrounded by some form of money. 
Dame Dollar's using money guns. Money's going up in the air. Giannis is talking about money in a contract or some guy that's playing an attorney. Tell him how much money he's going to get. He's sitting next to a bag of money. And Joel Embiid is kind of doing like the, the scraping of the money, like make it rain, that type of deal. So all of them are doing that. So I can imagine the discussion was from a strategy perspective. You see this insight? We're being up front. Right. Yeah. It's trash. It's trash. This is what I call being too cool for school. Because if you don't get that joke, that little inside joke, and of course they'll say, listen, dude, you know, the the CMO will say, dude, you're old. Millennials get this. Like, no, I'm not buying that. If you don't get that little that little joke, that twist, what it says about Hulu is it costs a bunch of freaking money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Unintentionally, that could be the way. Right. And the second thing it would say is that the only reason that I would talk about this garbage is because I'm getting paid. So I, th- I think it's being too cool for school. So that's my takeaway. What do you guys think? Mike, you want to go? I'm not familiar with the campaign, but... I couldn't agree more. I yeah. mean, there are so many times in advertising that people are trying to be cool and be hip and, and it comes off forced and doesn't work. So I, mm. I agree. It does come off. All the things that you just said. And of course, I agree with Dee. And, and the other part of it is, how did they decide these are three great young players? They are. Okay. They are. But where's the triangulation with the brands of these gentlemen? And Hulu and how they all work in concert. They they're, they're almost independent entities in that sense. I got they haven't answer. they haven't brought it together. All we know is that they're yes they're shouting Hulu has live sports, but that's it. There's nothing else there. In the words of the great philosopher and poet Charles Barkley, <laughs> it's terrible, <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible. Yes, yes. Here, here. Shall we turn it over to Doctor Moore here? Yes, please. Your new host? My, my new, new co-host, co-host yes. <laughs> what, what, okay, so what's, what's popping for you, Michael? Anything popping for you? You know, I think I'll go back just broadly talking about, um, you know, sort of marketing and advertising mm-hmm. and being effective and, and putting your best foot forward. I mean, I think that, um, you know, what you guys do is so critical and it amazes me. This is 2019 and... There are plenty of people in very senior positions mm-hmm. of cons- particularly consumer companies mm-hmm. that don't can't really articulate what positioning is, what oh. it does, and the power you know behind it to to sort of propel advertising and marketing forward. And so mm-hmm. I Thank think you. I'll just throw that out. I mean, y- y'all are going to be you know certainly multi multi millionaires, <laughs> billionaires if you can oh. you know do your thing. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I, you know, I, I continue. I, I remember I called LT one time. I don't remember the specific meeting, but, you know, I'm in this meeting talking about marketing and advertising and the keys to moving that forward. And throughout the whole thing, the word positioning never came up once. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, it was it, it, was, a, it was a renaissance weekend where, yeah. you know brilliant people. There were Nobel laureates and astronauts mm-hmm. and all these wow. folks. And we were having this conversation about consumer marketing mm-hmm. and, you know, people don't know about it. It'd be like if we were physicians and, you know, all of a sudden someone said something about the heart. Yeah. Right. It's like, right. it's like yeah. how, how do you talk about marketing? How do you talk about branding, about brands, about advertising? And you don't, you can't, you're not really fluent in positioning. Right. Yeah. 
it just doesn't make any sense. What do you always say about about the space shuttle? That's what you always used to tell people, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a foolish little analogy, but, you know, think think of yourself, you're up in space and you're about to sort of re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. You've got to enter at just the right angle of approach Mm -hmm. to get to the specific spot on the ground that you need to be on. If you're just a little bit off up top, you could be hundreds of miles away. And that's what positioning does. It helps you understand. And and I'm obviously great analog, but you got to know exactly how to approach the consumers that you're trying to market to, what to say, how to say it, how to touch them up at the strategic level so that when you're advertising, when your product, when every, all your consumer touch points kind of hit the ground, you're right where you need to be. So, yeah. yeah. What a great analogy. He's a pretty smart guy, this guy. It is pretty smart. <laughs> he's he's going to be good to work with in the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, t- I'm telling you. In, fa- in, fa- in fact, uh, Larry, I'm wondering, why do you still have the mic? <laughs> Hey, you know what? We might take your mic away. <laughs> As you should. As you should. Michael's a Stanford alumni? Uh, no. no. Not yet. No, not, oh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Not, not yet. Not yet. Good enough. That's good, Charlotte. That's good. Okay. So, man, I can't believe we're down to the show close. I know. This has been so much fun. It's been a blast. It's been so much it's fun. Been a blast. All right. So, D, I'm going to start off with the show close here, all right? And we, Mike... What we do in the close is simply sort of articulate what we've learned from you here. There's so much here. <laughs> and what I want to cull it down to is I love what you said. And, and I've heard you say a lot of things, a lot of wisdom over the years. But I love that you're talking about when you said that everything's additive, that you're smarter tomorrow than today. And that's truly the way you approach your life. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you have continue to evolve to where you're doing, as you said, this calling, right? Which, I mean, when you first told me about this, I remember saying, oh my God, like there can't be more of a perfect job and a perfect person that I've ever heard before. Yes. And and so I think also I'm going to say some macro, if you live your life right and you do the right things, you put your nose down and you do your homework and you treat people the way they should be treated and you have relationships like you've had over the years, you hopefully will end up being like this gentleman sitting next to me. So yeah, you're too kind, you know, well said, well said, Larry, Michael, it's hard for me to boil down a few takeaways. So much yep. great things that you have dropped here. You've dropped many jewels mm-hmm. on our uh, audience here, but I, I started to, coalesce around this from our chat with you. We learned from you. In brands and in marketing and communication, I think sometimes people get confused between content versus essence. Content is what brands and marketers use to talk about their brand. And they do it in many different mediums, in social media, TV ads, out of home, etc. And the content is the message and the storytelling. All of this is important. But what they missed often is what's the essence of the brand? Mm -hmm. What is it when you strip away all of that? What does the brand really stand for? What does it really mean? And then I'm going to come back to you, fella. You talked about this firewall between your career and your calling. Mm -hmm. So the question that I have for our listening audience is, 
who are you when you remove the titles and the descriptors? Mm. Like when you get away from, I've got an MBA, I'm a marketer, I'm a female, I'm African, I'm Asian, I'm Latino, I'm a father, I'm a mother. When you take all of that away, who is the you behind the you? And you, Michael, have figured that out. And that's why you're doing what you're doing right now. And I am inspired. I'm honored. I'm awed. And I am I feel blessed to have you sitting in the studio with us right now. That's what I've learned from you, my brother. So how are you going to follow that up now? (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. I, I appreciate it. You guys are very generous. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned perhaps being a little bit of an introvert and not, not, not overly so, but for whatever reason, at every sort of epoch era of my life, Mm -hmm. you know, I have one or two people that I've stayed in contact with from middle school, from high school, from college and the like. And from a very important time in my life, in my, you know, I guess early 30s, in the early yeah. 90s, you know, you guys are the ones who, you know, sort of come to mind. I mean, DC, I, I remember having lots of conversations with you. I remember one yeah. time, you know, outside in the middle of the night talking about Ferraris. Oh, and, yes. You know, <laughs> about decisions about, oh, I, I'm never going to, you know, I'm always going to have, be spending more money on cars. Yes, and yes, yes, And yes. then we became fathers. We became we, fathers. We got married. And <laughs> things things changed. Yes, they do. Priorities changed. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's great. And LT, you and I have, uh, you know, we've, we've stayed in touch and been close forever. And yep. uh, so you, you guys are, I consider you my brothers. So yes, we feel Thank the same way. We feel the same way. So what'd you learn from us today? Anything? Well, you know, again, I, I remain convinced that what you all do is, and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke, it is really the key mm. to really successful consumer marketing. Mm -hmm. And if I am a CEO and I I am a CEO and I've been CEO in other contexts and I am looking to grow my business, I got to talk to you guys because you all have that insight that can pull together, you know, a strategic, compelling, you know, point of difference and, and, and communications that can move the needle. And, and it, again, it, it amazes me. This is 2019 Mm -hmm. and there's still some mystery about all this. And most people don't get it, unfortunately, as you said. I I think they do. I applaud you. Thank Thank you, you, Michael. Thank you for the great work that you guys are doing. Thank you. Oh man, we got to close the show. Charlotte, we got to close the show, I guess, right? Oh my goodness. I know. Well, anyway, let's, let's do so. Okay. So everyone who stuck around for this, what I think was incredibly compelling show today, thank you so much for listening to Brands, Beats and Bites recorded here on the farm at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California and a production of KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM radio and worldwide at KZSU.org. Today, the recording engineer is the fabulous Charlotte M. Thornton. One and only. Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, the executive producers of Brands, Beats, and Bites are Jeff Shirley, Daryl D.C. Cobbin, Larry Taman, Tom Dioro, and Joseph Anderson. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and we look forward to next time, where we hope to have more insightful and enlightening talk about marketing with another great business leader as our guest. 
and a new co-host. <laughs> <laughs> and who's going to be the one missing, though? <laughs> and if you wish to contact us and our new co-host, our email is brandsbeatsbytes at kzsustanford.edu. And again, that is brandsbeatsbytes at kzsu.stanford.edu. Now, for your consideration, the history of your great-great-grandparents is directly responsible for your being here. Know your ancestry and be sure to visit the International African American Museum. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome.